0: have had to speak at our events. I think you're really going to enjoy her talk. She's always very thoughtful and articulate in what she portrays. I'm sure she's got something great prepared for us. So let's uh, give Sylvia a round of applause. Thank you. Hi everyone. Happy Friday. I was like, I was like slightly intimidated going on after like that brilliant like tax strategy thing right i was taking pictures and like hoarding it to my husband I was like we gotta talk to this guy. guy and then going on after carl it's like wow well, he's so serious it's not like such a serious thing that he's going to deliver and i am here to talk about the softer side of the business so i was like slightly intimidated going on after these two guys but then i realized that carl and i actually have something in common which is we both hate to sell and I, I hate selling. I think like everyone would do so much better in this industry if we all just stopped selling. Like everything that you think you're doing to sell is actually not working anymore. Sophisticated investors hate being sold to. And that really came across to me. Is like I, I really could resonate with the authenticity of Carl. You could feel he's a man of integrity and he um, inspires trust. So just the fact that you feel that resonance in him makes you want to get closer to him and understand what services he has and if they could be of use to your families, right? So I just want to applaud Carl for kind of inherently living that, that, you know, as a value. Um, I am, for those of you who've heard me speak before, I have a, a very, um, alternative way that I got into this industry. I was an entrepreneur out of college. I started a business in South America. But that was like before we called ourselves entrepreneurs, like I am that old. So it wasn't like, I wasn't like a startup person with VCs. I was just uh, scrappy. Colin grad, had an idea. Uh, with two other people, we built a business in South America. And I sold uh, my part of the business in 2000, mostly because my dad said, hey, Sylvia, the dollar is about to not be pegged to the Argentinian peso anymore. You should get out of Dodge. So it's just pure luck, <laughs> so, pure luck. And I, and I, and I had like a little bit of money, um, not multi-generational family office type of money, but more than I needed to live on for the next six months for sure. And I had to start to become an investor. And so I started speaking to, um, every financial advisor on the planet and it was shocking to me. One, they were all completely indistinguishable from one another. So I was like... It's like that today too. Like, I don't know why nobody got that memo yet. Like you guys are all basically widgets, and they were all selling. And so I, I couldn't understand that at the time. And so out of curiosity and just you know infinite desire for self punishment, decided to get my CFA charter and learn how to do it myself. It was hard for me to do it, but I I managed to get through that until. I was myself at the level where I was managing billions of dollars for family offices, um, today I am still in that role and I, so I've done kind of everything at this stage, I've been a fund manager, I've been a CIO, I've been in private banking, I've kind of seen the whole entire ecosystem from different angles and one of the things that has been a really important question for me is what makes a good investor um, as opposed to just a lucky investor and i think that when i heard that everyone was talking today about diligence and what are sort of the next generation ways that we're looking at diligence and specifically private investments i wanted to talk about the psychological aspects of diligence mm-hmm. and i think we underestimate how important those are so i'm going to run through that a little bit today and one of the things that i thought it's kind of confirming for me. It says, I just driving here. I live in Miami. I was listening to a podcast with Mark Andreessen. He was on the Rick Rubin podcast recently, which I highly recommend. It's a fascinating interview. And it's like two hours and basically the whole entire time, he's just a therapist. And he's like, if you really, really want to get down to what we do when we're investing in early stage companies, we are basically looking at all of the potential for things to fall apart, and where things usually fall apart is on the people level, right? So even something like Mark Andreessen is really thinking about what are the psychological blind spots that we have as investors, how do we identify them in ourselves, and how do we also pinpoint where those problems are going to appear in the companies that we are investing in, okay? so. Getting to that place, there's a lot of women in this room, so I'm glad to see that, was not easy for me. I think that we tend to think of this part of the business as something that is not critical. And it took me a really long time of sitting in a lot of investment committee meetings where people had a kind of confidence or like, okay, this is what we think is going to happen with the company. This is why we want to invest in it. Like, we tend to always talk about our diligence process with a lot of confidence. Anyone else can relate to that? Like, there's a sort... I think that in some ways, it's kind of like I call it investment theater, where we look at a company and we say, that, hey, we're kind of like, this chef, we're going to go. And I think that sometimes we don't give ourselves enough space to actually experience the um that, the lack of confidence that we have. Like, the fact that we sometimes really don't know what's going to happen. So a lot of what I'm going to share with you Came from me just being honest with myself, sitting at those tables, say, why does everyone else have so much confidence around this diligence? I don't have that confidence. And once I was willing to sit in the unknown, I began to develop these other skills, which I'm going to share with you today. So there are a lot of studies um, around bias in investments. So if you look at some of the um, historical studies, I'll share with you. If you look at, for example, people living in the Great Depression who were suffering through certain kinds of economic trauma, um, those people invested far less in the stock market over time than other generations did, right? So people who lived in periods of high inflation will continue to invest as if there's going to be high inflation. Um, There's been studies done on people who were young during the Korean War that even they became more risk averse as they were in their 50s. So, we, we know that different emotional things that we've experienced will create bias in ourselves as investors, if, if we're investors, right? So, let's go through some of this is like CFA. Um, yeah. you know, and that shouldn't say regency bias, that should say recency bias. Yeah. So, recency bias um, this is your short term memory winning out over your long term memory. So it's a tendency to believe that what happened in the recent past will continue to happen. The best example of that is if you flip a coin three times and it's always head, your mind is going to play a trick on you and it's going to say the probability is higher towards heads even though the probability remains 50-50. So that, you know, it's not something that's logical, but this is how our brains work. That's how our brains have been programmed to work. And then uh, the next is confirmation bias. So confirmation bias is basically we're always looking for something to confirm the set of beliefs that we already have. Um, One of the ways that this is kind of prevalent in culture today, when we think about which media we choose to tune into, we're gonna always pivot to the media that we know is going to confirm the bias that we already have around our particular worldview. That cost fallacy. So this is the one where you're an hour into a movie and you keep watching it. Even though it sucks. <laughs> yeah, this is it's hard. It's just, this is a hard one. And, and I'm sure all of you who are really active investors, I'm sure you've faced that moment where you have a uh, choice to double down on an investment um, to save it essentially, or if you're going to cut the cord and let the company fail. Um, I know that as a CIO I've faced uh, more of this recently because you know, you're know you seeing a lot of um, early stage companies are more starved for capital right now and it can be difficult to know whether you're going to keep adding capital to the company or not. So you have to be mindful in that moment to not overweight the capital that you're going to lose but to try to make that decision as if you're looking at it for the first time. Uh, negativity bias. So this is something that is actually hardwired in our brains. Um, you know, think about yourself. Do you identify as an optimist or a pessimist? So I'm, I, I guess you guys go, like I'm an optimist. Like you could probably just guess that by hearing me talk. So I'm, I'm gonna have. I'm constantly doing what my husband called sunny siding. So I'm always trying to find like the bright side of any kind of difficult situation. But our brains are actually more entrained, just from a biological basis, to overweight negative news over positive. So we actually will tend to put a lot more importance on something that's negative that's happening. And this creates also investment bias. Yes. Why do you think that is? I think it's because we kept it kept us safe, you know, as we we're evolving. So... Would you maybe attribute that to no one wants to be wrong? And by, right, by being an optimist, you can be wrong, right? But by being a negative, by basing your foundation for your decisions on negativity, you're right. Because you're right about being wrong, which makes you right. <laughs> I feel like I just had a conversation with Woody Allen <laughs> Um so yeah, I mean I think that uh, this this like a lot of this is going back to just what neuroscience is discovering about how the human brain works and because we have had to keep ourselves safe over thousands of years, we tend to overweight negative events in our breeding, over positive events. Um, And then this is my favorite, the illusion of control. I actually couldn't believe that that's like a bias that you can find like in books, because I just thought that that was like a problem of the entire human condition, that we're in control, but this is actually a bias that we find in investment making. And this bias is what leads to overtrading. trading um, if you think of, it's kind of like you can you could think about a lot of Wall Street suffers from this. There are a lot of um, fund managers who have this kind of like illusion of control that they actually believe that mm-hmm. they have more control than they than they really do. Mm-hmm. So it it can get a little uncomfortable to try to face that inside of yourself and say, you know. What would I do right now if I didn't think that I could control the outcome? How would I allocate my capital differently? So then the last one that I wanted to um, share with you is is something that's kind of emerging in neuroscience, and I myself am still learning about it, but I find this super fascinating, which is that recently they've discovered what they consider the center of the willpower, which is the anterior mid-singular cortex, and... Super recent discovery. And so, this is the part of your brain that grows when you are doing something you don't want to do. It requires friction. So, if you like to run and you run, this part of the brain is not going to grow. If you hate running and you force yourself to run, this part of the brain actually grows. And so, this is something that they're now determining actually, like that center of willpower, and that is a very important part of how the brain operates, and the more we actually pay attention to creating this kind of friction or this kind of continual learning process in our brain, the sharper it's going to be in terms of being able to make strong, clear decisions, right? So all of it is to me super interesting, and you're seeing now some very high functioning fund managers actually having neuroscientists on their team. Uh, I know of one family office in particular in Miami that works with a neuroscientist, and they're studying each of their decisions as they make them so that they can basically start to have attribution that is um, a little bit deeper than they had before. So like, why did we make these decisions the way we made them? Did it work or did it not work? And then having the neuroscientists help them to understand what they could do better or differently next time. So... What's the name of that? Uh, the anterior. Yeah, if you if you want to hear about it, go to this. You know, Huberman. He just did a podcast with David Duggins, and they they get into the but in a different context. It just relates to like longevity and wellness, but it's a anterior singular cortex. So yeah. Now, what what can we do about it? If You could consider the fact that our state of consciousness changes the quality of our decisions, whether you're an allocator or you're an investor or fund manager, the quality of your consciousness is going to continually impact how well you're making those decisions. And one of the ways that I think is useful to think about this is if you think about your brain as like a radio station. Right. And it's tuning into all kinds of stuff all day long. How many of you can relate to the feeling of being overwhelmed, too busy, distracted? So we're living in a culture, I'm not the first person to say to you, we're living in a culture where the number one thing that is being competed for on a daily basis is your attention. So, um, attention has been commodified in our culture. It is very difficult increasingly to actually harness the quality of your attention day to day. So, the first thing you want to do is someone who's making investment decisions that have like huge impacts on your families or on your, your, your company is to start to create those kinds of practices where you can actually harness your attention. Those are different for everybody. For some people it's running, for some people it's meditation, for some people it's breath work, but start paying attention to how much of your attention is, is split into a thousand pieces every day and begin to actually harness your attention back behind your, your decision-making. So one is really the cultivation of the field of your attention. And then the second is paying more attention to what else is competing for that bandwidth in your past. Everybody has things that they're carrying from their past. Whatever trauma, difficulties you've had, it seems like they're not relevant, they're completely relevant to how you're making decisions because all trauma is doing is it's creating a static in the back of your brain that's occupying bandwidth and if you begin to work through that with whatever tools are, you know, natural for you, you actually will amplify the quality of your consciousness when you're making decisions. So you want to look at all of the ways your attention can be focused. But the main thing that you're really trying to do when you're making decisions and you're really doing your diligence is you're looking for what is called coherence. So I'm not the person who invented this word coherence. Um, this comes from the work of Joe Dispenza. If anyone ever listens to Joe, he's he's amazing. like really at the kind of cutting edge of neuroscience and, you know, what he's doing is quite revolutionary. And he talks about coherence. And So coherence is when we've actually made some contact with our heart, right? So when I am sitting in front of my laptop, one of the first things I do is I actually take a moment to say, Is my brain and my heart in coherence right now? Am I actually feeling connected to my heart? Because your heart actually has a form of intelligence that is complementary to your brain. They do not need to compete with each other. They actually are supportive. So this, if you start to think, am I feeling coherent with my heart right now? Um, Am I, is my attention focused? Am I not split in a thousand directions? Like, what is my state of consciousness? And so when I'm doing my diligence now, the company, I've added to my diligence questionnaire for myself, what is your state of consciousness right now? If I have had an argument with someone, if I'm feeling rushed, if I'm distracted, all of those for me are yellow flags, but I need to put the decision to the side. And I am not going to make any decision until I am absolutely coherent and centered inside of myself. And my my true belief is that if we can begin to make those decisions from this place, if we begin to even just put into our investment committee meetings more the conversation on how is our state of mind and heart and consciousness right now, I do think that that's going to enhance the quality of our diligence in our in our investment making. So that's that's what I wanted to share with you today, and I can tell you that um, at this stage in my investment career, I actually think that the more refined my state of consciousness is, the more deal flow that's going to come my way, the more capital that's naturally just going to flow through me, and the better uh, the companies that I invest in are going to going to be for it. You just described emotional intelligence. What you describe. Yeah, Joe Spencer's book, Rewired, is addressing that as well. Yeah, I haven't read that book, but that's wonderful. Yeah, it's a little bit different, whole different levels spiritual. Yeah, and and I also think like this is you know this is controversial, and I certainly don't want to. I'm so I like. Teenagers, I'm so sensitive about saying things that are offensive and woke culture. And like, I'm super sensitized to this. But bringing this more into um, your companies and your families is going to allow for more diversity of voices at the table when it comes to investing. So like a lot of the times, the reason why women aren't necessarily taking leadership roles in like at the core like being a true deal maker is because they are deep down inside they're wanting this part of themselves to come out where they're saying like look I don't necessarily know if I want to invest in this company I have to actually really feel into it and and so I think that allowing for this diversity of voices is also going to encourage more women to be in our in our industry <laughs> yeah I think like a great a great example is like if you it's like um, like I'll tell you like a story like I went to Nepal for a service trip with a bunch of VCs about one year ago Um, like all super like powerful VCs and we're in Nepal on a service trip but all they talked about was their deal flow all the time and what was fascinating to me is the confirmation bias like every deal looked like the next deal Like the pattern recognition of what they're investing in, it was like same, 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 same. So they get in this sort of like comfort zone where they want to, they're looking for the same thing over and over and over again. And you want to, you know, you just have to be mindful of that, especially as market cycles change. I'll tell you what's really helped me the most by far is the minute I feel busy, I know I'm doing something wrong. Like, busyness is one of the great, like, viral sicknesses of our culture to the point where we even like how many times how are you doing I'm so busy and like it's supposed to signify that you're worth something in the culture like oh I'm so busy so busy and then you're like (laughs) why are we so busy like who invented that like why so I actually began to reframe busyness as being the number one enemy of the quality of my decision making So if I am busy during my day, that's an indicator to me that I'm not in flow state and I actually need to like rewind a little bit and do whatever helps me to kind of get back into my center. And if I'm really feeling busy and especially if I'm feeling overwhelmed, if I go into overwhelmed, I stop making all decisions, no decisions from a place of overwhelm ever because I'll make mistakes. And if you ever get me over some drinks, I'll tell you about some of them. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, so thank you, everyone. Thank you. you. Join the Family Office Club by visiting familyoffices.com. We look forward to seeing you at our next live event.